Where does the expression "armed to the teeth" come from? And what is the largest religious structure in the world? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective with some fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. Okay, Marsha, armed to the teeth. You've heard that expression. I would say it's uh, from one of the big wars of a big Big time war. Big time war. And it was if the soldiers had everything they needed on them to kill people, grenades, rifles, uh, knives, whatever, and they right up to their mouths, they had, they were armed. Actually, it's much more descriptive and accurate than that. Armed to the teeth, they believe, comes from 17th century pirates who wanted oh. to make sure they never ran out of ammunition. They would hold a gun in each hand, another gun in their pocket, and then they had a knife in their teeth. Armed to the teeth. We see that in movies, don't we? Then? Yes. So it means being overly prepared. Well, you know what's <laughs> wrong with that? You can't really have a chat with your enemy or anything. No, you can't. Because your knife would fall Apparently, out of your mouth. Apparently, the time for talking is no, over. No detente going That's on right. there. Okay. All right, Bob. Where or what is the largest religious structure in the world? I thought it was the uh, Vatican, but I think it's Mecca, isn't it? Isn't it where... No. No, not the Muslim Mecca? No. no? Not the Vatican? No. Nope. No? Really? Okay. Uh, <laughs> what? What is it? Okay, I'll give you a huge hint. Our daughter was there. Chelsea was there. Yeah. The largest structure in the world. Religious structure in the Religious world. Religious structure in the... Oh, it's yeah. Angkor Wat. That's it. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, that's right. It's the enormous Buddhist temple complex located in northern Cambodia. It was originally built in the first half of the 12th century as a Hindu temple. And it's spread across more than 400 acres, Bob. Angkor Wat is said to be the largest religious structure in the world. Those pictures that Chelsea sent back were pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to visit there myself. Yeah, it uh, looks unlike anything else. You it was kind of hard to get to for years and years, but now there are hotels around it and everything else. So yeah, it's a and cheap. <laughs> Very cheap. <laughs> okay, Marsha, I have a high culture trivia question, okay? High culture, okay. After 16 seasons on stage, this performer just retired from the Metropolitan Opera. Do you have an idea who it was? Is it a guy or a girl? It is a uh, guy. Uh huh. Uh huh. Sir Gabriel. Ever heard of Sir Gabriel? No. <laughs> this is one of those fun stories you see every once in a while. Sir Gabriel was a donkey. It's a donkey that has pulled a wagon across the stage in La Boheme for 16 oh, years. Oh, God, really? 16 years. He played years. the ass in La Boheme, huh? It was one of the asses in La Boheme. <laughs> it's not easy to be an opera donkey, they call them, <laughs> because there are 250 actors on stage in the scene they're involved in. What? Music I can't is playing. 250. People are singing. There are adults. There are children. And there's another animal, too, a horse pulling a handsome cab. So an opera donkey has to be confident, unafraid, and ready to perform. And Sir Gabriel performed so well, he was beloved by actors and stagehands alike. He's just been replaced by a donkey named Wanda. <laughs> 
who is in the prime of her life, age 15. Donkeys can live to be as old as 35. Wow. So so how does this work, live animals on stage? I don't know. Would he just roam around the stage doing donkey things? No, there were specific things he had to do. But every night, Wanda, this is the new one, arrives for her performance in a trailer, either from Walk Hill, New York, or from the Bronx. She stays in the Bronx when she has a steady gig in town. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what her hotel's like. She's taken out of the trailer and led to what's called the horse door. It's a large street entrance at the Metropolitan Opera, and from there she heads inside, walking through a labyrinth of hallways past costumers and cast lockers and stagehands. Her trainer and three men carry buckets and shovels in case of an accident, (laughs) and then they lead Wanda and her horse co-star to waiting places backstage and then that's where they're hitched to their wagons. Wanda's has a colorful cart carrying toys in which a peddler distributes to child actors on stage and then somebody yells donkey coming down and then everybody spreads. (laughs) Donkey down. And comes the donkey comes through out onto the stage and there's music playing and people there and everything and children and all this candy and then as soon as it's over uh, Wanda goes across the stage into the wings on the other side. She's on clipped, undressed, unharnessed, and goes out the other horse door. (laughs) But first, there's a treat. There's hay time outside. They have hay time first. (laughs) She always gets treats, and that's how it's done. As for Sir Gabriel, he retired to a Maryland farm, and that is not a euphemism. He will enjoy life as a companion donkey to a mare who recently lost her partner. Oh, he's a companion donkey. Isn't that interesting? Senior living for donkeys. For donkey actors. Yeah. Yeah. And the actors. That's a niche market for sure. It really is. So is the talent agency, All Team Animal. That's an agency that furnishes everything from hissing cockroaches, lion cubs, and other animals to film, fashion, and theater producers. But Sir Gabriel, the donkey, and the La Boheme at the Metropolitan Opera, happy retirement. Well, that's uh, good. (laughs) All right. I've got some more expressions here. Barking up the wrong tree. Where Uh does that come from? Uh Barking up Up the the wrong wrong tree, tree. Marcia. This is something you do frequently. (laughs) No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Well, does this have anything to do with... Dogs? Yes, it does. All right. Um, Why would they be barking up a tree? Well, at a bird or something. Why would they be doing that? Because they want to eat it. All right. It, uh, It is from hunting. It's the use of hunting dogs. They would bark up the tree into which they saw their prey run or fly, and even if the prey had somehow escaped to a different tree, the dogs might still continue barking at the wrong tree because oh. that's the last place they saw that squirrel go. Oh, yeah. Okay. Know? Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, here, I want you to answer this as you remember it from last week. What What does it mean to say, cost an arm and a leg? We, we were at a museum last Sunday. That's right. We were at the uh, Dousman stage. Stagecoach Inn. Yes. And it was a very interesting museum where the, uh, the, uh, they actually have a stagecoach inn that was preserved from the 1840s. And we learned a few things about those that were interesting. But and this first case here, yes. the arm and a leg, we thought that dealt with itinerant portrait painters. That's what the docent was telling us. People used to have their children's portraits painted. And the itinerant painters would come with a wagon loaded with scenes with uh, everything but the head on this, <laughs> little darling pictures of children. Uh, and if you wanted an arm and a leg, it cost you extra. Yes. It cost you an arm and a leg Well, for so, that painting. Yes. Yeah, so I thought that was a curious story. So I had to double check that story before I brought it to the throngs of our listeners. And was but it right? No, it's considered a tall tale. Uh-huh. And it uh, it referenced that exact story about how, you know, they all limbs cost more on a painting, but that's not true. 
Actually, it was after the American Civil War, Congress enacted a special pension for soldiers who had lost both an arm and a leg. Okay. And the phrase, costing an arm and a leg, begins to crop up in newspaper archives in 1901, referring to accidents and war injuries. So it's, it was probably an insurance term then. Oh. Basically, actually, a lot of the old insurance policies and maybe some of the current ones do. They refer to loss of limbs, but they're specific to arms or legs. Yeah. Can I do one more word origin? Mm-hmm. What's the origin of the phrase "big wig"? Big wig. Oh, I think that's from the uh, from England and was from the great high lords on the courts. They they had these big wigs they wore. So if you were a big wig, you were an important person. Yeah. It's sort of right, but more than lords wore them. Okay. Uh, going back a little bit here, in 18th century, the English bathed even less than twice a year. <laughs> <laughs> Not just the English, it was all, and even all of royalty bathed hardly. Yeah, any. They, they took sponge baths. They put powder all over themselves. Powder and uh, herbs or nice smelling oils. Those who could afford to take the cure at a mineral spa or seaside retreat might have a full body plunge into a mineral spa or something. But folks kept clean with sponge baths. Most men kept their hair real close cropped to fit under their wigs because it wasn't just judges. A lot of guys wore wigs around town. And the big shots had big, fancy, puffy wigs. So if you had money, you were called a, a big, big wig. Because you had a big wig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Marcia. This is a nation within a nation. It's 270,000 people. It's 27,000 square miles of territory, is larger than 10 of the 50 U.S. states. What is this nation within a nation? Is that the Vatican City? No. That's a small nation. That's a very tiny place. Yeah. This is a nation whose territory is larger than 10 of the 50 United States. Oh. Here's your clue. Okay. It's within the United States. Oh, What is the nation within a nation? It's not Washington, D.C.? It's the Navajo Nation. Oh, of course. Can you believe that? That's huge. It extends into the states of Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, covering 27,000 square miles. So it's larger than 10 of the 50 states of America. And it is really a nation. It has its own government, as do all of the Indian tribes. So I've got a couple more questions on Indian tribes coming up. But do you remember the Navajo talkers? Ever hear about that? Yes, yeah, yeah. What what was that all about? Well, that was uh, World War II, right? The Mm -hmm. codes. Mm -hmm. And they gave the code in Navajo language, and it couldn't be broken by the... uh, by our enemies because they couldn't figure it out. That's right. That's right. Major uh, Howard O'Connor of the uh, 5th Marine Division, after Iwo Jima said, if it wasn't for the Navajos, the Marines would never have taken Iwo Jima. He had six Navajo code talkers working around the clock during the first two days of battle. These six people sent and received over 800 messages, all without error, all unbroken by the Japanese. And apparently there were 400 Navajos trained as code talkers during the war. The first 29 Navajo recruits attended boot camp, and then at Camp Pendleton, Oceanside, California, they created the Navajo Code. They specifically created a dictionary, and all the code words had to be memorized during training, and they could encode, transmit, and decode a three-line English message in 20 seconds. Now, machines at the time required 30 minutes to perform the same job they could do manually. Just amazing. So they took part in every assault the U.S. Marines conducted in the Pacific from 1942 to 45. So meaning they were on the scene. They were there. Okay. They They served in all six Marine divisions. 
Wow. Isn't that something? And so they were on the ground. Were they on boats and stuff, too? They were on the boats everywhere. They transmitted messages by telephone and radio in their native language. Again, the code that the Japanese never broke. And they were honored for their contributions to uh, defense in 1992 at the Pentagon. I always love that story. Okay, Bob, what are the most visited tourist spots in the United States? I got the top three here. Can you guess any of them? I think uh, Yellowstone National Park was number one. No. No? Mm-mm. Okay, the top three in the United States. Yeah, and now, are they are they uh, national parks or not? No. Okay. That surprised me. Grand Canyon was number 22. Hmm. <laughs> so. Sea Rock City. Was Rock City uh, <laughs> C3 states, 10 three. states from Rock City, whatever it was? <laughs> no. Okay, what were they? Well, number one is Times Square. 50 million visitors. That's considered a, a tourist attraction. Yeah. I, I never did. thought of it that me way. Me either. And two and three, where both 42 million visitors per year, is another New York, Central Park, okay, and Las Vegas Strip. 42 million people go to Central Park a year, and it's still a beautiful park. Yeah. That's amazing, isn't yeah. it, when you yeah. think of it? So those are the three top. And the Las Vegas Strip? Yeah. 42 million people visit the Las Vegas Strip biggest, every year. Yeah, tourist, biggest tourist spots in the United States. Well, I never thought those three would no, be I, the top No, I would have guessed one of the beautiful sites, but no. Huh. Okay, Marcia, in which state does the Missouri River originate? Little geography question. It's called the Missouri River, but where does it begin? Okay, does it originate in Missouri, Montana, Oregon, or Wyoming? Thank you, Bob. I'll say Wyoming. It's in Montana. Oh, okay. The river's headwaters are at the uh, confluence of the Madison, Jefferson, and Gallatin Rivers near the town of Three Forks, Montana. The Missouri is the second longest river in the United States, and it feeds into the Mississippi, which is, of course, the biggest, the first. Of course. Of course. Where does the Missouri meet the Mississippi, Marcia? Well, I can tell you that someday. (laughs) I don't know. Just north of St. Louis. Okay. Where is the driest place on Earth? The driest place on Earth. Well, let's see. Death Valley was supposed to be the driest place in North America. I think that's the hottest Okay, well, maybe the driest and the hottest. <laughs> uh, would it be the Dead Sea? No. Or is it somewhere in some place like China? No. A desert in China? No. Okay, where is it? Do I have a hint? You always want hints and you never give me any. Well, yes, I no, do, but not don't. this time. No. Because, no, the driest place on Earth. There are a series of valleys near Ross Island in Antarctica where no rain has fallen for at least two million years. Wow. Yep. It's so cold, uh, 70 degrees below zero is the average. There's no precipitation up there that they can tell for two million years. Things might change, though. A few months ago, Bob, in one part of Antarctica, the temperature hit 70 degrees. Yeah, never seen before. The warm spell resulted in the collapse of an ice shelf for the first time in human history. Oh, my God. That was just a few months ago. That's scary stuff, huh? Yes. All right, Marcia, before we go to break, I have a little statistic you'll find interesting. Okay. In this web age, this internet age, we've seen so many hundreds of companies be formed, and many fail over the past, I'd say, 20 years or so. Has there ever been a time in history where there were that many companies that were forming? Well, I would say turn of the century, 1900s, the Industrial Revolution. Any particular technology? I don't know. Telephones. From 1894 to 1903, an estimated 20,000 telephone companies were started in the United States alone. What? 
Isn't that amazing? When was that? From 1894 to 1903. 20,000 really? oh. telephone companies were started in the United States. I got the time frame right, only I yeah. didn't get the, you know, specific. That's uh, amazing. That comes from a Forbes magazine. So uh, almost every city had their own telephone company. A lot of little telephone yeah. companies, and then they were all consolidated into bigger ones. Wow. All right. Looks like it's time to take a break. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. And <laughs> we'll be back with more in just a moment. We're back again. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. Marcia, I have a question for you. In all recorded history, what artist has the most streamed music? We're talking about music streaming uh-huh. on streaming services. Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift, good guess, but no. It is a contemporary artist. Is, it, uh, is he a black fellow? An African-American guy? His father is African-American. His mother wasn't. Okay, Drake. That's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah, Drake. This is fascinating. In 2021, his catalog outstreamed all music released before 1980. Wow. So all music, including the Beatles, Elvis, and other more famous stars. I know he's really popular, and he sounds good, too. Okay. All right, Bob. I made you watch Father of the Bride from 1950 last night. <laughs> well, you, you made it halfway through, I think, before you bailed. I fell asleep, Marsh. Let's just be honest about it. I fell asleep. Oh. Spencer Tracy was doing his best, but I fell asleep. Yeah, Elizabeth Taylor was the bride, Joan Bennett. Anyway, so here's the question. How many versions of the movie Father of the Bride are there? I know of three for sure. Uh-huh. There was that one. There was uh, the one with Steve Martin. Yeah, and I then uh, that one. I forget the other one. No, there's more. Okay, and how many are there? Six and six, se- six and seven. If you include another one that is still in development, and the sixth one is a 2022 film with Andy Garcia and Glory Estevan. Wow! It's all based on a book of the same name by author Edward Streeter. It's about an out-of-control, expensive wedding and a father of the bride trying to cope with it. So unlike real yeah, life, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but six and <laughs> uh, about to be seven versions. That's I mean, hard that to believe. It is, but it's certainly a timeless topic, isn't it? Well, it is, <laughs> and every year it's more expensive. Well, the wedding back in 50 that was out of control was $5,000 with Spencer Tracy. Oh, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yes. All right, Marcia, what country has the highest percentage of people with dementia? This also happens to be the country that has the largest aging population. Well, that goes hand in hand, huh? Mm -hmm. Who has the most dementia? Hmm. It's the country where one-third of the population is 65 or older. Is it in Asia? Yes, it is. Is it China? No, it's not China. Korea. No. It was the country that was our biggest economic adversary in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Japan, yeah. Japan, one-third of the country's population is 65 or older, and one out of every five people over 65 lives alone. And many scientists are now linking Japan's high rate of dementia to isolation. So with a rapidly declining population... That society faces many unique problems, including the possibility of pension shortfalls. There won't be enough workers to pay for the pensions of the elderly. Well, they're worried about that here, too, yeah. There was a recent movie made there called Plan 75. It imagines a future Japan where life ends voluntarily at age 75. Oh, no! Voluntarily? Plan 75. It's like there's a whole program to encourage people to (gasps) to commit suicide at 75. Put them out on the flow. Oh, my God. God, what a terrible idea. But remember, Plan 75, Marsh. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> Save your money, baby. You're not putting me down like a dog. 
All right, Bob, can you name the four achievements Ernest Hemingway says are necessary to become a real man? The four achievements necessary to yeah. become a real man. Yes. No, I have no idea. Are they you, financial? Are you've they? Done, well, I think you've done two out of these four. Well, I'm half a man then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I caused Marcia to go into a congestive heart failure here. Well, plan 75. <laughs> I'll let you get your composure. All right. All right. Okay, my little half a man. Can can you name the four? Can you give me any hints as to what these might be? Are these well, cultural things? It's a real mishmash. Well, actually, I now that I look at it, I think you've done three of the four. Okay, what are they? They are plant a tree, write a book. I'm just thinking of the Storyworth book you're writing right now about oh, yeah. your life. But you and I both wrote some books for some companies, so. Oh, that too. And have a son, that's three. Yes. And the fourth one? Is fight a bull. Fight a bull. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ernie had some very specific ideas Nothing on what Nothing about macho. having a daughter, though. No. Well, that he, makes you a man, too, to oh, have a daughter. So, well, so I they're think Ernest. So. Well, he was very macho. Ernest had a lot of problems. Well, he did. He was an alcoholic. And what were they? Yeah, plant a tree, fight a bull, write a book, and have a son. Okay. There you go. You're more than half a man. <laughs> You're three quarters. So glad I'm more than half a man. Okay, Marcia, city names. Singapore. It's named after what predator? Singapore. It's named after a predator? Yes. It comes uh, from the Malay phrase Singapura, which translates to? I don't know. Lion City. Really? Yeah. According to legend, Prince Sang Nila Utama chose this name after coming ashore and believing he saw a lion, so the lion head is the national symbol, and that's what Singapore stands for, is the Lion City. No, I didn't know that. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Sean Conroy. Sean Conroy, okay. <laughs> 007. Always had to wear makeup on his arms while shooting James Bond. Did you know that? No. Why? God, that guy had so many problems. I mean, he was a young man, and he had to wear wigs because he was going bald. <laughs> he was going bald from the very beginning of the James Bond films, yeah. and now he had to wear makeup on his Arms? arms yeah. For what? Did he have scars or something? That's my question, Bob. Okay, did he have scars or something? <laughs> he had something. He had tattoos. Oh. And, uh, and his tattoos declared his love for mom, dad, and Scotland. Oh, I'll be darned. Uh, and he represented that in the Mr. Universe contest in 1952. Did yes, you know that? Yes, he was like a weightlifter, a really attractive gentleman. Yeah, he's really not my kind of attractive. Okay. He didn't plant a tree, I'll bet. No, well. he didn't plant a tree, so he's <laughs> less than half a man. That's right. Okay, Marcia, break the ice. Where does that expression come from? Break the ice, yes. To make a group feel comfortable so as to cultivate yeah. friendship or to stop a conflict between friends. Break the ice. Where do they think that came from? From making cocktails in the 1950s. You put the ice, the rocks in, and you give it a little crack, and you're breaking the ice to sit down and have a good time. Always drinks and food with you. What is that? <laughs> no, that's not it. Okay, I don't know. During a time when roads were not fully developed, ships were the main means of transportation and trade, and during the winter, ships might get stuck on ice that formed on uh, you know lakes and other bodies of water. So the receiving country would send smaller ships and help the trade ships pass by breaking the ice for them. Oh, okay. Because they wanted to make sure goods and services were exchanged. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. So that gesture came to mean an invitation of friendship between the sending and receiving countries. We'll okay. break, this, break the ice. Yes. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Fascinating. It is fascinating, Marcia. Okay, Bob, according to Reader's Digest, recent issue named the best sandwich 
according to readers and their chefs in every state. So we live in Wisconsin. What is the number one sandwich in Wisconsin? All right. Uh, well, let's see. Number uh, one. It's pretty obvious. Okay. Is it, you... is it bratwurst? Yeah, right. Yes, yes bratwurst. Can, that is, uh, yes, it's the beer brat, to be specific. Oh. It's oiling brats in beer and onions before grilling it. And it came to Milwaukee Braves game in 1954, and it's still part of tailgates from here to Green Bay. Bratwurst have been around a lot longer than 1954, which I think was coming up on the World Series. But boiling it in beer and onions became a thing back then. Uh, it's interesting that it took a professional baseball team to make that possible. Well, That's at least, interesting. At least the uh, concession people that work there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Marcia, back to the Native Americans. We had that uh, question on the Navajos earlier. So then I thought, well, how many Indian tribes are there recognized? I mean, we've been a country almost 250 years now. Uh-huh. How many Indian tribes still exist within the United States? And this is the way I will ask the question. How many federally recognized Indian nations are there in the United States? Twelve. No. 574. Oh 574 federally recognized Indian nations. Yeah. Approximately 229 of those are in one state. What state would that be? Is it in the Midwest? No, it's not. Is it in the Southwest? No, it is not. Well, is it, it is in the far north. Alaska. No kidding. Alaska. 229 of the 574 federally recognized nations are in Alaska. And the other tribes are located in 35 other states. And then how many total indigenous people are there today? What's the population of those 574 tribes today? Uh, Okay. Tell me. World Population Review estimates there were nearly 10 million indigenous people in North America before the European settlers came. In 2022, the U.S. Census Bureau reported the total population of Native Americans in the United States is now 6.79 million. Hmm. What states have the highest number of Native Americans? Tell me the top three. Okay, I'll say Wisconsin, Montana, and New Mexico. No, none of those. (laughs) The biggest state in the country has the highest number of Native Americans, California. It has 757,628 Native Americans. I wouldn't have guessed that. Oklahoma is second with 523,360 Native Americans. And Arizona is third with 391,000. And what state has the highest percentage of Native Americans? We go back up to Alaska, 20% of their population. Uh, They have 145,816 people who are indigenous. You know, they're Native Americans. uh What state has the lowest total of Native Americans of any state? Wyoming. No. Montana. No. Vermont. Vermont has (laughs) the lowest total number of Native Americans, 8,169. And you're part Native American. What were you? What was your tribe? Chippewa, we believe, yes. Mm -hmm, Chippewa. mm -hmm. What did you go down? Some kind of census rabbit hole? (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of fun, you know, because, you know, Native Americans are overlooked when we talk about uh, America and our history so Mm -hmm. often. Fascinating. All right, I'm going to finish up with a quote from a woman who I had her face on my T-shirt once, (laughs) Susan B. Anthony, okay, a suffragette from the early 20th century. She said, Someone struggled for your right to vote. Use it. Very good. That's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Off-Ramp and hope you join us again next time when we return with more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia Uh here on The The Off-Ramp.
The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.